The sun was so hot I could feel it boil. It's a mighty tough job drilling for oil. The nights were cold and filled with rain, brought by the winds a-sweeping the plain. But we were running high and it was looking good, just like wildcats do and should. Fifty feet, maybe higher, kind of filled my soul with a burning fire. Wildcat, wildcat. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., Cringy, Cindy S., and Corey S., unfucking insane level members of the show. And we're proud to announce that longtime unfucker and friend of the show, Nathan E., has joined the ranks of the illustriously insane to support our little engine that could. Additionally, this episode is sponsored by unfucking pros Levi S. and Tristan E. Once again, we were overwhelmed by the show of support from unfuckers around the world who took out memberships at buymeacoffee.com UNFTR or purchased actual coffee from our partners on the Puspatuck Reservation. And we finally got our shipment of new bags and are almost ready to fill orders for our new Mellow Maynard blend and introduce whole bean coffee to the store at unftr.com shop. So we'll send out a notice on Substack when we're stocked and ready. And if you haven't subscribed yet to our Substack, to get the essays from the show, head to unftr.substack.com. And remember, it's free and will always be free to join the UNFTR Substack. That's right. Now, on the heels of Max's little meltdown last week, I wish I could say he's toned it down a bit, but we have an episode that he's frankly a little too excited about. It's one of those. Why would you say it like that? Shush, it's not your turn. Anyway, like I was saying, this week is about one of Max's favorite topics ever. Oil. Shit, he uses enough of it in his hair. I've tried telling him the 80s are over. <laughs> Between that and the Miami Vice thing? It's, that's a lot. Holy shit, I'm literally right here. Shush. Anyway, it's a big storytelling week as we review the past, present, and future of oil, dissect its transition from resource to currency, and even bring in our old friend Milton Friedman. Now you can talk. Oh, well, thank you. Listen, I am excited. Oil is literally part of everything we do. It's all around us. In our products, in our homes, our cars. In your hair. In my... I don't have oil... Well, beyond its many product uses, oil does a few other things. It hides our massive hypocrisy, makes us behave very badly on the world stage, fuels our war machine both physically and in appetite, and it makes the world go round. In many ways, this is our most ambitious unfucking yet because there isn't an aspect of our lives that isn't in some major way impacted by oil. In some ways, I see this episode as a culmination of much of our journey together because it relies on many of the central themes that we've explored. Greed, free markets, climate, imperialism, corporatocracy. The story of oil is the story of modern politics, economics, and sociology, and the parallels between our addiction to crude and our nation's history are undeniable. They are forever linked. Through a series of explanations and anecdotes, I hope to show how the story of oil is more than bubbling crude beneath the surface. It's the story of America. To illustrate how the same fuckheads who believed that they were setting the markets free only managed to put us in chains. It's not about supply and demand or market forces. Oil isn't just a product. It's currency, leverage, power. Ultimately, what I hope to prove is that while we have visions and fantasies of a clean energy, renewable, and climate-neutral future, the current structure cannot, will not, allow for that to happen unless some very big, bold changes are made to how we view our place in the world. I want to know absolutely everything that's happened up to now. Well, let's see. 
first the earth cooled, and then the dinosaurs came. But they got too big and fat, so they all died, and they turned into oil. Oh, my friends, we are fucked. Deliciously, unreservedly, catastrophically fucked. And not the good kind. We'll traverse this audio journey together to upend conventional wisdom, blow up narratives on the left, right, and middle, and use magical devices like facts, logic, and reason to explain how exactly we arrived in Bizarro America, the funhouse mirror version of what was originally intended. I see this episode as the third in a trilogy that includes our climate-industrial complex and vegan episodes. Taken together, they paint a picture of the existential crisis we face as a species and what can be done if we have the courage to break with convention and think differently about our predicament here on Earth. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but as we weave our way through our story today, I want to call three specific people to your attention. Three massively important figures in the world of oil that I guarantee most people on the planet have never heard of. Leo Melamed, Jeffrey Sprecher, and Teodoro Obiang. We'll do the worst first because he represents everything that can and did go wrong in our reckless pursuit of crude. Chapter 1. The Dictator Equatorial Guinea is one of the smallest nations on the African mainland, but it has the third largest GDP per capita in the whole of Africa, and it's the fourth most corrupt. It's run by one of the longest tenured dictators on the continent named Teodoro Obiang, who took power from his own uncle, whom he had executed. Let's check in with 60 Minutes Australia to see how they feel about this man. He's vicious, he's venal, and he's robbing his country blind. His country is an African hellhole called Equatorial Guinea. Jeez Louise, no mincing words down under. I first heard of Equatorial Guinea from Peter Moss's incredible book, Crude World, The Violent Twilight of Oil, published in 2009, when I became fascinated with oil and commodities. A fascination sparked by one of the greatest American investment banking scandals in my lifetime. But we'll get to that in a bit. Growth in Equatorial Guinea has been explosive in recent years due to renegotiated contracts with several large U.S. oil-producing companies. Originally, this wasn't the case. When oil was originally discovered in the Central African coastal nation located in the, quote, armpit of the continent, not my phrase, by the way, U.S. companies swooped in like vultures to take advantage of this incredibly impoverished country. Mr. Clampett, that swamp of yours is full of oil. I could have told you that. Well, my company would like to pump it out. Under the newer lease agreements, Equatorial Guinea is taking a much larger slice of the pie, though precious little of the money actually finds its way to the people of the nation, who still rank among the poorest on the continent. For many years, Obiang and his family funneled money through various banks throughout the world, including a corrupt boutique bank in Washington, D.C., called Riggs Bank. Moss reported that by 2003, Obiang's regime was holding between $300 and $500 million at any given time just in Riggs, money that represented the cash reserves of his nation. But Riggs was out of its depth and was eventually outed by investigative reporter Ken Silverstein, whose reporting launched a probe into the bank. Obiang's wealth remained intact, but the bank didn't. Riggs would eventually become so scandal-plagued for such behavior that it had no choice but to sell its assets. And nevertheless, it's estimated that the dictator has currently amassed in the neighborhood of a billion dollars personally, with far more still unaccounted for and spread out among family members, including his social media famous son of the same name, who will likely take over from Obiang someday. Very few outside of Africa, have paid much attention to Obiang before the discovery of what is estimated to be 
1.1 billion barrels of oil reserves. It's enough to last the country another 580 years at current production levels. You won't hear much about this small African nation in American media. In relation to the rest of the continent, Equatorial Guinea is a postage stamp area of land with around 600,000 inhabitants spread between the landmass on the continent and a few neighboring islands. It's common to read stories in the French and Spanish press, but most Western media simply ignore the country altogether. This is one of those countries that literally qualifies as the worst on the planet. Torture, human rights abuses, assassinations, extreme poverty. It has all of it and more, including the full support and admiration of corporate America and the U.S. government. When Moss visited the country a few years back, he took in a celebration of the nation's dictator and wrote, quote, Just as the festivities settled into mind-numbing redundancy, I noticed a trio of American flags coming up the road, carried by a delegation of local men and women whose banner said they were from ExxonMobil. They were followed by delegations from Halliburton, Chevron Texaco, and Marathon, all of them hoisting corporate banners, American flags, and celebratory placards that hailed the wisdom of the president." End quote. Teodora Obiang is free to roam the world and spend lavishly on compounds in Europe and in America, including mansions on both coasts here. He's been greeted warmly by the Clintons, embraced by the Bush administration. Condoleezza Rice called him a, quote, good friend. And there's even a smiling photo of Obiang and the Obamas on Google. But don't take my word for it. Here's now-deceased former ambassador to Equatorial Guinea under Ronald Reagan, Frank Ruddy, who was also of counsel to ExxonMobil, speaking about Obiang in a Democracy Now! interview from 2008. In the case of Equatorial Guinea, uh, the United States uh, has acted shamefully. We have basically, uh, for reasons of realpolitik, treated a dictator, a killer, a thief, uh, with the greatest respect. Uh, Condoleezza Rice recognized him as such when she received him at the State Department as a great friend of the United States. And uh, that, as an American citizen, as just a, a human being, disgusts me. It's, he's not the kind of person that should receive any honors from the United States. He's a killer. He's a murderer, he's a torturer, and he's a thief. Dude, that fucking guy worked for Reagan and said that shit. So why start with Obiang? Equatorial Guinea is only the 39th largest oil producer in the world. Who really cares? Because it says a lot about the industry, our foreign policy, and our willingness to overlook heinous crimes against humanity when it suits our interests to do so. In terms of being a kleptocracy, Equatorial Guinea is regarded as one of the worst in the world by multiple agencies. Its people live in squalor and fear. Almost none of the petrodollars generated from the sale of oil go to support its people. Because it's so small and sparsely populated, even though it ranks low among global producers, the oil revenues from their contracts with American companies could have easily made it one of the richest, most socially and economically developed countries in the world. As a near one-to-one -one comparison in terms of ratio, there's Norway. It's a good fit. The 13th largest oil producer, with a population of 5.8 million people in a territory about 14 times the size of Equatorial Guinea, Norway ranks number four in the world for gross national income. That's pretty spectacular, but what makes it truly special is its retirement guarantee. Norway discovered oil late in the game and made all of the right moves. While it licenses operations to several outside companies, Norway centrally owns and controls most of the revenues associated with production and pours it into a sovereign wealth fund. As Leif Wehner writes in his 2016 book, Blood Oil, quote, Today, most of Norway's oil money goes into this pension fund. 
Norway's sovereign wealth fund is now the largest in the world, worth almost a trillion dollars, and it is waiting to begin paying Norwegians pensions whenever the people decide that it's time. Norway has the highest public health spending per person among the industrialized countries, as well as generous funding for parental leave, public daycare, and for unemployment insurance." End quote. If that's the right way to do this, then Equatorial Guinea would be exactly the wrong way. Moss expertly describes the oil industry as a nation within a nation. Everything is imported. The labor, the equipment, the rigs, the food, the sex workers, you name it. All for the oil men who run the rigs. Literally, nothing goes back into the country. It's an oil baron's utopia. And in fairness, they never had a shot. Once it was discovered that the country was sitting on a billion barrels, U.S. oil companies made Obiang an offer he couldn't refuse. Here we go. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Even the paltry original leases compared to what other nations are paid by our firms was more money than the dictator could ever imagine. And the savvier he got, the better the deals he was able to negotiate. The better the deals, the richer and more ruthless he became. And over the years, Obiang enjoyed the full protection of the United States government to do as he pleases. And by protection, I mean we simply ignore him. Completely. We look the other way. You see, Obiang has a couple of things going for him. One, he's a dictator interested only in cash and therefore has no interest in nationalizing the oil industry. And two, its residents are primarily Roman Catholic as it spent years under the brutal colonial rule of the Spanish government. Libya, Sudan, Egypt, Somalia, the places that we tend to fuck with the most, are predominantly Islamic states that are predisposed to hate our anti-Islamic imperialist ways. But Obiang prays to only one god, and it ain't Allah. UNFTR. Well, now listen, people, let me tell you some news. I sing a song called the Crude All Blues. We're low on heat and on, we're low on gas. And I'm so cold, I'm about to freeze myself. We got the Crude All Blues. Gone to winter time, so getting cold to the bottom of my shoe. Chapter 2. What Lies Beneath Before there was a demand for oil as the fuel for industrial growth, it was seen as a plentiful substitute for whale oil, which was running critically low. The first rig made to specifically drill for oil appeared in Pennsylvania in the 1850s, as industry searched for a way to replace whale oil for lamps primarily. The original crude was transported in whiskey barrels, but it wouldn't take long for infrastructure to be set throughout the country as more and more discoveries were made. The first rig was assembled by a guy named Edwin Drake who kicked off the rush for the new black gold. Drake would never achieve the type of fortune that would accompany such discoveries and innovations shortly after and through to today. Fun fact about the whiskey barrel is that it would become the standard size for a barrel of oil, and this standard was determined by John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil. Anywho, fast forward a few years and the business became an industry, and a big one. And what would a burgeoning capitalist industry be without bad actors who try to rig the system in their favor? So, in 1928, a bunch of crusty oil barons from Royal Dutch Shell, Anglo-Persian Oil, Standard Oil, and Gulf Oil, known respectively today as Shell, BP, ExxonMobil, and Chevron, got together to engage in price-fixing at a meeting in Scotland. I am William Wallace. They called it the As-Is Agreement, but it was short-lived because they weren't the only ones who'd figured out how to unleash oil from the ground and they were constantly being undercut. Then a couple of things happened. First, the crash in 29 and the beginning of the Great Depression. 
but more importantly for the oil man of this time, an old wildcatter named Dad Joyner discovered oil in Texas. At that point, the United States became the center of the oil-producing and trading world. The government established the Texas Railroad Commission, or TRC, to impose restrictions on the supply of oil in order to control pricing, making it the arbiter of global prices from 1931 to 1971. But a great deal happened from the days of Drake and Rockefeller to this period, where some of the normal asshats in our unfucking journey join in. Suffice to say that the industrialization of the world and growth of the automobile meant that oil would become the basis of the entire modern economy. The only problem for the U.S. was a theory known as peak oil. As Moss writes, this phenomenon was, quote, discovered long ago by M. King Hubbard, a shell geologist who predicted in 1956 that America's oil output, not including Alaska, would peak by 1970. Hubbard's prediction, derided when he made it, turned out to be, in broad terms, accurate. His forecast was based on the production trends of reservoirs he studied. He noticed a bell curve in which output rose until the reservoir was half empty, and then output dropped as quickly, or slowly, as it had risen. At the halfway point, reservoirs continued to yield oil, but the amount slipped year by year because the fields had lost what was, in essence, their geological vigor." End quote. Now this obviously makes a lot of sense. We all know that oil is a finite resource trapped below the surface of the Earth. What Hubbard didn't see coming were multiple new discoveries of productive wells in the deserts of the Middle East, off the coast of every continent, and in the deepest parts of the ocean. America and other nations started hunting around the globe for new discoveries, and for a while it seemed like we couldn't miss. But because the discoveries were in parts of the world that weren't adept enough to extract, U.S. oil companies went into deal-making mode and took favorable long-term leases throughout the world. And the prevailing contracts typically landed around 50-50, and for a while, that worked for everyone. However, as Morgan Downey writes in an exceptional book and resource titled Oil 101, quote, Cracks in the 50-50 concession arrangements began to emerge in 1951 as Mohammad Mossadegh, the democratically elected prime minister of Iran, nationalized his country's oil industry. Mossadegh took possession of the British-owned and operated Anglo-Iranian oil company production and refining facilities on behalf of the Iranian state in what became known as the Abadan Crisis, end quote. So this kicked off the inevitable embargoes and sanctions against Iran, which nearly bankrupted Iran, but everything returned to normal when the Brits and the U.S. teamed up to overthrow the country and install the Shah of Iran. In 1960, OPEC was formed by five founding member nations, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iran, Iraq, and Venezuela, to try and exert pricing influence over the market. The effect of this was marginal, actually, which is largely misunderstood by observers who ascribe way too much power to OPEC. Price, up until this era, was very much tethered to the U.S. dollar because the dollar was the default currency for oil transactions, so when the dollar was weak, oil was high, and vice versa. Now, as we've covered before, though, and this will be familiar to unfuckers, the 1970s ushered in a new era of financial fuckery and chaos, beginning with Nixon's unceremonious exit from Bretton Woods. As Morgan writes, quote, dollars could no longer be exchanged for gold or any other metal held by the U.S. government, end quote. Oil was on its own, and therefore pricing was more susceptible to normal and abnormal market conditions. Two such abnormal conditions occurred on the heels of our exit from Bretton Woods and created shocks to the system. Shock one was in 1973, when Arab OPEC members cut off supply to the United States in solidarity with troubles in Egypt and Syria. And the second shock came later in the decade, when Iranian oil workers decided to strike in a rebuke of the Shah. 
So we've covered the first hundred years or so of the oil business, how it grew, how the United States exerted its influence, and how pricing typically worked right through to the 1970s. This is where things get really juicy because we can bring in our Chicago boys to show how they fucked up this part of the economy as well and set us on a path to unbridled crude addiction. But before we get there, I think it's helpful to understand all aspects of crude oil. It's a strange thing because it's literally all around us, but very few of us ever come into direct contact with it. It's hidden in our gas tanks, our products, in big storage tanks, or little cans and tubes. But because it's out of sight, we never stop to think about the actual product itself. So let's get a quick education from Morgan Downey on all of the distillates and the uses of crude oil. To begin, there are different types of crude called petroleum fractions, essentially from light to heavy. Petroleum gases, light ends, middle distillates, and heavy ends. Moving from light to heavy, here are the fractions in the primary uses. Methane. Used for heating, cooking, and electrical power. Ethane. Petrochemicals and plastics. Propane butane. Together they're referred to as LPG when liquefied for consumer use like barbecue tanks and heating. Naphtha. Petrochemicals, plastics, solvents, and blending for gasolines. Gasoline. Transportation fuel. Kerosene. Jet fuel, lighting, cooking, heating. Gas oil. Diesel fuel, home heating oil. Lubricating oil. Motor oil. Transmission oil. The shit Max puts in his hair. Residual fuel oil. Marine shipping fuel, electrical power, industrial fuel. Greases and waxes. Lubricants, candles, and coating fruit. Bitumen. Road paving and roofing. Coke. Blow, toot, chop, nose candy, line, rail. Uh, no. Industrial fuel for steel production. Oh, yeah, no, I, I know. I, I knew that. Bottom line, it's in everything. It's fun and popular to think about defossilizing the economy until you start looking around at literally everything around you. Even shit that doesn't have oil in it was probably made in a plant that requires it to run and transported by a ship running on residual fuel oil onto a truck using gas oil and into your gasoline-powered car to your home that uses home heating oil or natural gas under your roof made of bitumen. It's inescapable, and so is the reality that it will be with us forever. I know this sounds pessimistic and we'll come back to some mitigating concepts in our conclusion, but this isn't an opinion. Consumption statistics from the EIA portray a worrisome trend. From 2030 to 2050, the numbers are actually encouraging. And remember, this is if we stay on our current course, if nothing changes. Over the next 20-year period, the EIA estimates that coal consumption will decline and renewable energy consumption more than doubles to a point where it, quote, nearly equals liquid fuel consumption by 2050, end quote. They attribute this to falling costs of renewables and changing government policy and foresee global renewable consumption hitting 27% by the same time. So great, right? I mean, considering this is an all things being equal scenario, we're kind of on the right track. Unfortunately, the world isn't projected to stay still through this period and gaps in energy production will need to be filled. Despite encouraging policies in the European Union and South Korea, the EIA predicts that coal will remain very much in the mix the whole time, even though it will decline in absolute terms and in share of production. This is due to the, quote, expansion of some coal-reliant heavy industry in India, the availability and security of local coal supply in some regions, and the projected growth of coal-fired generating plants in non-OECD Asia to fuel the region's growing economies, end quote. Troublingly, the report also concludes that post-pandemic, the economy will really surge again, and along with it, travel, manufacturing, and chemical feedstocks for the food supply will increase consumption of liquid fuels from natural gas to pure crude and other distillates. 
All told, despite gains in the use of renewable energy, they project, quote, growth in liquid fuels consumption to continue at a near constant pace through 2050, end quote. In other words, renewables are one step forward, but population growth puts us the same step back. So if you're thinking we're in a position to naturally phase out fossil fuels and transition the global economy under current policy, you couldn't be more wrong. And we're going to talk about some people who not only know this very well, they're banking on it. Before we get to the financial fuckery that Max loves so much, let's take a break with a little palate cleanser to catch up with some old friends. It's been a minute. And now for something completely different. We now go to the Situation Room in the White House, where President Harris has assembled some of the top U.S. politicians and officials to address the unfolding crisis in Ukraine. Let's listen in. Bitsy, bitsy spider, what up the water spout? Down came the rain. Joe Biden, the meeting is starting. Hey, where's Strom? Listen up, folks. I've asked representatives from all walks of political life here today. We've got a situation going on with Ukraine, so it's time to put partisan politics aside and strategize. And what is Ukraine? Uh, it's a country that... Bo- <clears throat> Pisaki? Yes, ma'am. Show Mr. Johnson around the West Wing. It's the closest he'll ever get. Is it near Aleppo? Here's the deal. Russia has assembled 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine, so we're in a pickle. We got a secure phone call with Putin in a minute, so any bright ideas, get them out now. Let's send 100,000 of our own troops and tell everyone it's the world's largest kickline competition. Oh yeah, you can use my house as a staging area. I can see Putin from it. Governor Palin, how did you get cl- Don't you have COVID? Oh, you betcha. Pisaki, on it, ma'am. This is not a joke, people. We already saw what he did in Crimea. Putin told you to cry me a river? Stupid son of a bitch. Hey, I was thinking. If we do go over to Ukraine, Hunter mentioned that he might have left a bag of dimes over there. I think you mean a dime bag, sir. Hot damn, you're right, Lloyd. Jesus Christmas. Lloyd, get Putin on the phone. Hello, this is Vladimir. Vlad, it's President Harris. I'm here with ah. a- I love that gag. You've reached my voicemail. I can't get to the phone right now, so leave message after the boop. Boop! Motherfucker, did he just put us straight to fucking voice- Ah! Got you again. Jokes, jokes. It is me, Vladimir Putin. And me. Tell them I'm here. Uh, Vladimir, is Donald Trump with you? Uh, no, no. That is just my friend, Ronald, uh, Krumpsky. Quiet, Donald, or I release pee-pee tape. Sorry, I'll be fantastically quiet. Not a peep. Yeah, well, once again, you've broken your word, Vladdy. We had a deal. No troop movement until the midterms. Hey, Vlad, how's it hanging, buddy? Is that you, Joe? How's Hunter? Did you get the happy meal that I sent over? Uh, can we focus here? Now, what about our deal? Things change, President Harris. This is a complicated world for men. I changed my mind after talking it over with President Xi. Hey, she has a name, you know. It's President Harris, damn it. Stupid son of a bitch. You have no leverage here. The American empire is crumbling. Everyone knows Godfather Biden is sick and doesn't have that kind of muscle anymore. A uh, quick question. Why did you take your shirt off? Are the strippers coming? 
Quiet, Ronald Kramsky. Now, listen closely. Not only are we taking over Ukraine, but we're also invading Bhutan, the happiest place on earth. And there is nothing you can do to stop me, Vladimir Putin, president of the world. When it is all over, I will control both the happiest and saddest places in the world. Hello? What did I say? Why so quiet? Okay, before the break, we dissected the elements of crude oil to show how many different applications there are for it in our daily lives. We did a brief history of crude oil exploration and how dictators and companies profit from unearthing it. And we talked about how, despite the best efforts to increase the share of renewable energy sources, the consumption trends are disheartening over the long haul. Now, we shift gears and head over to the financial side of the picture, where things got really fucked up. Or, as we say around here, Max's wheelhouse. This is Chapter 3, Wildcatters in Suits. Thanks, Manny. Dan Dicker was a former commodities trader who wrote kind of a tell-all about his trade. He's an analyst today who's been warning the public about the degradation of his former industry ever since he left. Let's tee things up a bit with a brief passage from his book, Oil's Endless Bid. Quote, Thousands of articles appear every day on oil, trying to explain the micro and macro movements of prices. Those articles and television spots fling around oft-repeated and accepted ideas of what is really driving prices. The dollar, emerging market growth, the peak oil theory, to name only a few. But traders view all of these inputs to price in a far different way than the rest of the public and the news-driven media that report to them." End quote. When Dicker started out as a floor trader, it was clear that the trading volume in the pits was driven by oil companies, which is a logical observation. But he noticed a shift around 2003 when drivers of the volume shifted from oil companies to financial institutions like Goldman Sachs and Smith Barney. Gradually, price was less a reflection of tangible circumstances. Again, Dicker, quote, The difference in who is trading oil makes for very real price differences. To put it simply, that's because the participants who are now primarily engaged in the modern oil markets don't really care much about the price of oil. And when price becomes unimportant, it can move in unexpected and radical ways, end quote. So what do modern traders care about, if not price? Spread. Spread and volatility. As we'll show in a very high-profile example, driving volatility is big business, especially when you can stand on either side of a trade and make money. Make money when it's going up and when it's going down. Leaving the real schnook is the consumer who winds up paying for it down the line in the price of goods that require fossil fuels to manufacture, at the pump, and in heating their homes. It's a very wicked game that was never intended to be this way. And this is where our story gets really juicy and gets me pumped on fuckers. Jack! I'm Jack to the tits! Now, when you talk about oil in the United States, most people think about Texas. But the fields and refineries are only half the story. For the other half, we have to revisit familiar territory and head on back to Chi-Town. As you heard, the oil biz was what it was until the 1970s. It grew from this point forward in volume and price volatility until the point that Dicker mentioned in 2003 when Wall Street traders got into the action. But none of this could have happened if it wasn't for a good friend and protege of Uncle Fuckstick, a.k.a. Milton Friedman, named Leo Melamed. 
head of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, or the Merck for short. Melamed took advantage of Nixon's move off the gold standard and changed our world forever. In 1972, Melamed established the International Monetary Market, IMM, within the Merck to facilitate the trading of currencies after President Richard Nixon repealed Bretton Woods, which removed the United States from the gold standard and allowed world currencies to float, as we've covered before. Now, in short order, Chicago would no longer be known as the second city when it came to trading. Now remember, everything currency-related was fixed before this. No spreads, no margins. But Melamed recognized that a floating currency meant volatility, and volatility meant spreads. And it's in the spread that traders live and thrive, but Melamed didn't stop there. No, sir. The genius of what the Merck introduced was the possibility of trading futures on just about anything. This eventually included oil, which would begin on a small corner of the New York Mercantile Exchange in the late 1970s, trading home heating oil futures. Soon, almost everything would be fair game to trade. The marriage of deregulation and technology over the past several decades has birthed franken markets that influence nearly every aspect of our daily lives, from controlling pensions and mortgages to home heating oil and bread. Traders are pagan gods and we are their minions. Although markets today are bigger and faster, the underlying truth to the trading game is simple, proven, and unwavering. For every winner, there is a loser. So Leo Melamed unwittingly created a casino that allowed a highly select group of traders to wager on everything that mattered to the average consumer. It would take a few decades of deregulation, a handful of really bad decisions made by some really shitty people, and a visionary to set the stage for a Wall Street takeover that pushed the world economy to the brink in 2008 and one of the most underreported and long-forgotten financial scandals. But let's start with the visionary person first. If Leo Melamed was Bugsy Siegel, then Jeffrey Sprecher is Steve Wynn. Melamed created a comfortable niche scam that made a handful of traders very wealthy, but Jeffrey Sprecher turned commodities trading into Las Vegas and made it a force to be reckoned with. In a wonderful book titled The Asylum, The Renegades Who Hijacked the World's Oil Market, Leah McGrath Goodman details the unlikely rise of Sprecher, a power plant contractor in California who, quote, became so frustrated with the archaic ways of power trading, he wanted to make it easier for power plants, specifically his own power plants, to buy and sell their electricity. In 2000, Sprecher approached NYMEX, then the largest futures trading desk based in New York, with a revolutionary concept. Instead of the old-fashioned, in-person pit-style trading, why not move everything to the internet, where energy futures could be traded 24-7 with complete transparency? It was the logical and, in hindsight, inevitable move, but the old-school traders at NYMEX weren't prepared to move into the future. But there was one company that understood the potential value of this when they caught wind of Sprecher's idea. Instead of involving him, though, they essentially stole the idea and did it on their own. That company was Enron but more on them in a bit. Undeterred, Sprecher set about creating the technology for an online trading platform. But if he was going to beat Enron and get this thing off the ground, he would need some massive players to move volume on his exchange. So in 2000, Sprecher formed the Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE, in Atlanta and approached the biggest players in the game to invest. Here's Goodman. Quote, in exchange for test driving ICE, he would give away all but 5% of his business to 13 of the world's largest energy trading companies and banks. They included Goldman Sachs, arguably the most powerful bank on earth, Morgan Stanley, Duke Energy, Deutsche Bank, Reliant Energy, Shell, Total, and BP, among others. End quote. 
From the outset, the ICE was a success, but not on the scale that one might imagine compared to the much larger equity and bond exchanges. That's because until this time, an important aspect to the commodities market was that there was always a ceiling to the transaction. Every investment made in the United States, for example, was overseen by the CFTC. This market cap and theory of transparency and regulation kept the commodities market in relative obscurity against its much bigger counterparts. These regulations prevented players like investment banks and hedge funds from engaging in speculative activities and commodities because there wasn't enough money in it. There just wasn't enough risk, not enough upside. What Sprecher needed to really make this thing soar was the ability to invest serious capital within the United States, just like their counterparts could on the London Exchange, for example. Now call it luck, vision, or corruption, a year after founding the ICE in Atlanta, Sprecher purchased the London-based International Petroleum Exchange, IPE, and he renamed it ICE Futures. It was an acquisition that was fairly straightforward until 2006, when the CFTC seemingly out of nowhere officially recognized the ICE as a foreign-based exchange because it purchased the IPE. So even though the ICE was based in Atlanta, backed by U.S. banks, and now traded publicly on the New York Stock Exchange, the CFTC somehow decided to treat it as if it was based in London, and thereby no longer subject to federal trading regulations. This one small shift meant that the investment banks could suddenly trade every type of commodity, especially crude oil, without any spending limits or federal oversight. And it was here that the wheels really began to fall off the commodities market. Now, let's back up a bit to revisit Enron, because something else happened while Sprecher was building the ice that would ultimately contribute to massive fraud in the system. Recall that Enron, the now infamous defunct energy company responsible for rolling blackouts in California, was also creating an exchange. Well, in order to accomplish this, they needed an opening. They weren't, after all, a bank or an oil company. They had no standing, no ability or reason to even be trading energy futures. It was a utility, and that's not what they do. So to get in the game, they needed a regulatory change, a change now referred to as the Enron loophole. Under the cloak of darkness at the end of President Bill Clinton's second term and the waning days of the 106th Congress, then-Senator Phil Graham dusted off a bill now commonly referred to as the Enron loophole and attached it to an 11,000-page appropriations bill on December 15, 2000. Now, the bill had previously died on the House floor, but Graham resurrected it when pretty much everybody was gone. He found a new sponsor, became a co-sponsor, changed the bill number, and turned it into an amendment. That's a lot of work at the end of a year for a little loophole. So here's what it did. The Enron loophole essentially permitted the trading of energy futures on over-the-counter markets, thereby allowing a new set of investors, hedge funds and investment banks, to trade energy futures. But as we said, these trades were still transparent. So while it allowed Enron to participate, the OTC exchanges still saw relatively little activity as compared to their European counterparts, where the oversight was far more lax. Now, it should be mentioned that Phil Graham's wife was former CFTC chairperson Wendy Graham. So the Grahams knew these rules inside and out. They knew exactly what they were doing when they shoved this loophole into the regulatory bill after it was already written and vetted by the Senate. In fact, very few people even knew that Graham inserted the language in the bill at the time. As Goodman writes, quote, The loophole, which applied to complex financial instruments as well as over-the-counter energy market, had allowed trillions of dollars of credit default swaps to go completely unregulated, causing global banks to fall in on themselves like dying stars. 
the Enron loophole had worked like an enchanted tonic. After it was approved, U.S. crude oil and natural gas futures volumes leapt 90% in just five years, with the number of traders betting on the market more than doubling according to the U.S. Government Accountability Office. But the real victory was off-exchange in the over-the-counter market, where Wall Street traders drove commodity volumes up 850% to an estimated $3.2 trillion in the same five-year period, according to the Bank for International Settlements, end quote. So after Wendy Graham left the CFTC, and five weeks after creating this exemption, she became a board member of, you guessed it, Enron. In return for her work deregulating the market for Enron to exploit, she racked up millions as a board member prior to the company's collapse. The Enron loophole outlived Enron and opened up the markets to a flood of cash from sources that had never before contemplated such massive investments into commodities. Commodities and investments like CDOs and derivatives, the financial packages that would collapse the housing market in just a few short years and bring the American economy to its knees. Between the Enron loophole, Sprecher's invention of the ICE, and the Bush administration's mind-blowingly irrational decision to consider ICE a foreign exchange and therefore exempt from any U.S. regulation, the stage was set for another historic meltdown. Chapter 4. Mac the Knife. Now on the sidewalk, uh-huh, uh-huh, ooh, Sunday morning, uh-huh, lies a body just oozing life. And someone sneaking round the corner. Could that someone be Mac the Knife? In the summer of 2008, the financial world was just beginning to melt down. Only we didn't know it. The housing bubble was about to pop. The entire global economy was in deep trouble, but only a few people understood just how bad things were about to get. Wall Street needed money, and it needed it fast. Over at Morgan Stanley, a promising young analyst named Doug Terrison was about to be an unwitting and ultimately unwilling accomplice in one of the most underreported financial scandals in modern history. See, in 2008, the price of a barrel of oil skyrocketed to historic levels, in part due to the forecast that Terrison never got to make. See, at the time, he was a rising star in Morgan Stanley's Houston office and was often lauded for his ability to predict the movements of oil on the commodities exchange. John Mack, then the head of Morgan Stanley and Terrison's boss at the time, was not just a wealthy Wall Street executive. Mack was an oil man, in every sense of the word. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. Now, you have a great chance here. Bear in mind, you can lose it all if you're not careful. Out of all men that beg for a chance to drill your rods, maybe one in 20 will be oil men. The rest will be speculators. That's men trying to get between you and the oil men to get some of the money that ought by rights come to you. How so, you say? Because under Mac, Morgan Stanley amassed a formidable group of companies involved in every aspect of oil from refineries to home heating oil, a move that partly enabled Mac to navigate through a storm that brought some of the biggest American investment banks to their knees. And the whole world picked up the tab. By exploiting regulatory loopholes and throwing caution and conscience to the wind, Morgan Stanley, along with Goldman Sachs, artificially thrust oil prices to record levels. They didn't call him Mac the Knife for nothing. But Mac was just utilizing the tools available to him. 
Mac ran Morgan Stanley through the 90s before accepting the job as co-CEO of Credit Suisse First Boston, a leading investment bank in 2001. But he left Credit Suisse in 2004 to pursue options outside the large investment banking world and then was wooed back to run Morgan in 2005. Upon his return, Max Morgan Stanley went on an aggressive and bizarre oil buying spree, but not the kind you might expect. On May 24, 2006, Morgan's resident oil expert, Terrison, announced that integrated oil equities were 15% undervalued. And in a research report, he wrote that independent refining and marketing remains the largest sector bet in the global model energy portfolio. Soon after, on June 18, 2006, Morgan Stanley acquired Transmontane and its subsidies, a half a billion dollar group of companies operating in the refined petroleum business. How convenient. After their oil analyst decides that this portion of the industry is looking up, Morgan Stanley gets into the oil business and buys an oil terminal company. However, it did not take only 25 days to conceive and work out the Transmontane transaction. This had to be a long-planned, well-thought-out takeover, one that worked for the great benefit of Morgan Stanley's future oil plans, as Transmontane went on to own one-third of the nation's oil terminal storage capacity. Morgan's investments in the oil business continued aggressively over the next year into the far corners of the industry. In short order, it closed the circle of supply chain by acquiring Hydemar, a shipping company that owned 120 massive oil tankers, as well as various stakes in foreign-based energy supply companies. It even snagged a contract from the U.S. Department of Energy to store three-quarters of a million barrels of home heating oil at its corporately-owned terminal in New Haven, Connecticut. Morgan Stanley, which was at the time the largest trader in oil futures, was now a serious international oil company. On March 14th of 2008, Terrison said that oil would settle around $95 per barrel for the remainder of the year. Moreover, Terrison also concluded that oil would then retreat to about $83 a barrel in 2009. That would be Terrison's last forecast for Morgan Stanley. Two short months later, Dow Jones Newswires reported that Terrison had been ousted in a round of layoffs, the golden boy just thrown away. And two weeks after that, Richard Berner, Morgan Stanley co-head of global economics and chief U.S. economist, issued a statement saying that crude oil could reach $150 a barrel. So it should be noted that this guy Berner never worked in oil, ever. Had no idea, had never done a forecast before, had never prognosticated, didn't even know the industry. But suddenly, their analyst is out, and this guy's saying it could go to $150 a barrel. Well, the forecast set off a round of speculative fervor never before seen in the market. Goldman Sachs had to follow suit immediately after and forecasted that oil would roar beyond $150, saying it could hit $200 a barrel. Oil prices were off to the races, with the investment banks in full lobbying mode and then pointing the finger at China and India. Remember, this was smack dab in the middle of what we now know was one of the worst liquidity crises in banking history. In 2008, a lot of important firsts happened. And on July 11th of that year, the price of oil hit $147 a barrel. As the records become a nearly daily event, market watchers are speculated on how high oil may go. Some throwing out numbers as high as $200 a barrel for crude. This is not market-based pricing. This is simple greed. If you saw $100 oil after ticking up to nearly $150, you'd become much more optimistic, I wouldn't would. you, John? So what happened? It's a complicated question, and there are lots of theories. 
but many people believe it was a speculative bubble and that it had more to do with traders and speculators on Wall Street than with oil company executives or sheikhs in Saudi Arabia. For a brief moment, oil did indeed hit $147 per barrel, a record never before reached and likely never again. Finally, Congress stepped in to ask what the fuck is going on, and only then did former regulators and traders cop to the con and say that the entire thing was cooked up. It was just pure greed, pure speculation. So they're sitting there and they're panicking, they're screaming, sell, sell, because they don't want to lose all their money, right? They're out there panicking right now. I can feel it. They're out there. They're panicking. Look at them. But why? Why get so out of control? What happened to the so-called perfectly functioning and self-policing free markets? Well, the timing matters here again. It's 2008. So let's say for a moment that you run Morgan Stanley and you know what most of America is about to discover, that the bubble's going to burst. Not to mention over the past few years, you made a couple of bad deals. Okay, more than a couple, but maybe not as many as your friends at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. Regardless, you are going to need cash and fast. Thankfully, you have a remarkable control over the price of oil just by forecasting it. All you have to do is say the words and the markets will follow. Pick a number. How much cash do you need? You need it to be $100 a barrel, buck 25, a buck 50, whatever helps you close the gap and fill the coffers. These motherfuckers derailed the entire US economy. They knew it was coming and they didn't want a liquidity crisis. So they just stole our money before anybody knew what the fuck was going on. It's no small matter of convenience, by the way, that you also own one third of the oil capacity in the country and control several global shipping routes. What's more, the government just handed you a contract for three quarters of a million barrels of home heating oil for the Northeast United States and you found it and are still an owner in a public exchange that handles energy trades that no one can really see. Win, 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 win. But it shouldn't come as a surprise. This is the same company that 10 days after the Deepwater Horizon explosion in the Gulf that claimed the lives of 11 men issued what Oil & Gas Financial Journal called a, quote, comprehensive report on the financial implications of the explosion. You know what they determined? The bottom line was that the analyst at Morgan predicted that insurance would cover the costs associated with the spill and that the inevitable regulation that would occur will financially benefit the industry by limiting the number of new entrants into the market. In fact, Morgan predicted that, quote, established offshore drillers with the newest deepwater units to benefit as demand for their rigs is likely to increase and that it will be positive for the drilling industry. They concluded saying, quote, this would make the long-term supply outlook for tankers more favorable. And of course, they were right on all counts. And what else did they own without fucking telling anybody? Tankers. So why bring this up now? What does this have to do with commodities today, the price of oil, or the prospects of a renewable future? Well, I'm glad you asked. Chapter 5. Bring it home, Max. When we talk about breaking from our fossil fuel dependency, it feels both possible and impossible. Possible because renewables are coming fast and furious, right? Humans are fucking smart. We can do this. In the vegan episode, we talked about changing our relationship to food to flip the ratio of plant to animal products in our diets. How we can cut down on food waste and generate biofuel from seaweed farming. We know what to do. In our Climate Industrial Complex episode, we did the math to show that the missing financial ingredient and the engineering capability to convert our entire economy to a green economy was hiding in plain sight. 
It's in the military budget and that the military has been planning for climate resiliency since the early 90s. So we know that they know. And now they know that we know that they know. So all of this is fucking possible, right? Wrong. The purpose of going so deep into the oil market is to help understand how deeply flawed the system is. But it's frustrating to also know that the flaws are the result of very recent inventions, inventions designed by the same cast of free market fucketeers that we've been howling about for the past year. Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek's promise that the almighty markets will set us free and make the world a fair and better place. Please understand that these markets, this whole fucking mess, is not just an idea they had. It's well documented that Friedman in particular considered the commodities pits in Chicago to be the best real-life examples of a free market. Yes, commodities. Oil and gas, wheat, barley, copper. In the obscure and small world of commodity traders in Chicago, Friedman saw perfection. A vision for how the whole world could and should work. But it doesn't. And it didn't. Because we're greedy fucks that cannot fly straight unless we're regulated. But there's even more to it. Now, as you've heard before on the show, I'm a huge fan of The Illusion of Free Markets by Bernard Harcourt. Using Friedman's favorite pet exchange, the Chicago Board of Trade, which is no different than NYMEX or the Merck. In fact, CBOT and the Merck eventually merged. Harcourt explains in detail how Friedman and other free market ideologues were victims of flawed thinking from the start. I'm going to read a kind of long passage here, but it really illustrates what we're talking about. Quote, the entire history of the CBOT is a series of government interventions and regulatory adjustments that have facilitated a state-sanctioned monopoly and empowered the private practices of a small association of brokers and dealers. The U.S. Supreme Court essentially put its stamp of approval on practices and its ability to regulate business and created a monopoly for the grain trade. The state of Illinois deregulated its rulemaking authority to a private regulatory agency. CBOT wasn't unregulated. It merely regulated itself. And by creating its own Byzantine set of rules and high barriers to entry, it ran a monopoly that didn't allow outsiders, confused outside authorities, and prevented whomever they wanted from participating. By 1882, the initiation fee stood at $10,000. What the CBOT brought about was not a shift from a state of nature to free exchange, nor the production of order from chaos, but the creation of a new order that simply distributed wealth in a different way. Exchanges are essentially highly self-regulated clubs that restrict entry and exit and control the internal dealings of all members and non-members, the regulatory layers on top of that, whether the SEC or federal prosecutors, merely add mechanisms for further review and regulation, end quote. Harcourt calls the idea of a self-regulated market, quote, preposterous. It would be like a competitive sporting event without a referee, end quote. See, free markets are a fantasy. They cannot, will not, and have never existed because there will always be the max of the world, willing to game the system, sacrifice the public as pawns to gaining wealth. Remember the words that we've often spoken from Adam Smith, who said that a free market is one that is effectively regulated. But this is still even bigger than that. If the EIA projects that liquid fossil fuels are projected to steadily increase through 2050, despite aggressive gains by renewable sources, then we have no choice but to intervene heavily. All of the loopholes that we covered, they still exist. Anyone who thinks oil is simply a product of supply and demand and other market forces doesn't understand the industry. 
Just like before, the commodities market, the prices of which affect us directly as consumers, are still ripe for manipulation. The only reason we haven't seen the outrageous example from 2008 is because the government saw fit to pour liquidity into corporate coffers, thereby propping up the equity markets. But is there seriously anyone who believes that equities are fairly priced at this point and not in some late stage of a bubble? Please. Remember this lesson when the bubble inevitably pops and commodities stage a comeback because they'll likely tell you it's because of OPEC or a supply chain disruption or maybe even a war in Ukraine. These markets no longer give a fuck about these things because oil is no longer a commodity. It's currency. It's a currency that props up ruthless dictatorships, pollutes the planet and threatens our existence. It's run by robber barons on Wall Street, not wildcatters on the Texas Plains. They're just bit players in a much larger scheme, one that waits in the wings for the bubble to burst, leaving us all to pay the price. Only through central planning to coerce the country toward a net zero future, with the full support and force of both military personnel and the military budget, can we halt this criminal enterprise and give ourselves a shot at a clean energy future that no longer props up villainous regimes and extracts more from the average consumer than it does from the ground. Commodities aren't currency. Regulation is freedom. And once again, for posterity, fuck Milton Friedman. Here endeth the lesson. Okay, before we get into the heart of show notes, I just want to do the book love really quickly because we quoted a lot of different things here. So we've got Oil's Endless Bid by Dan Dicker. It's a pedestrian but informative account of what it's like to be a commodities trader and what went wrong with the business. Then we've got Illusion of Free Markets by my man Bernard Harcourt. And we've talked about Harcourt a lot. The first few sections of the book are very inaccessible, but they do provide a valuable history of the impact of Enlightenment thinkers on the new class of free market promoters. The other is The Futures by Emily Lambert. I didn't quote from this, but I pulled from it. So a lot of inspiration just in understanding how the world works. It's quite possibly one of my favorite business books of all time. It's a great read told in really fun and engaging anecdotes that helps anyone access and understand the bizarre world of the markets. And we've got Oil 101 by Morgan Downey. It's a fundamental book to understand the product itself and the markets that move it. Crude World, as you heard, by Peter Moss. It's required reading, in my opinion, for anyone interested in the dark underbelly of oil and gas. Blood Oil by Leif Wanner, not my favorite. It's a little overreaching with the historical and sociopolitical connections it tries to make, but it does contain some solid anecdotal insights to support a broader thesis of corruption. And uh, one that I actually I had for a while and I only got to in preparing for this show is The Asylum, The Renegades Who Hijacked the World's Oil Market by Leah McGrath Goodman. It is fucking awesome. So if you're really into this topic, this is the book for you. This is the one to read. I came to it really late, as I said, but it's such a deep, excellent narrative into the world that very few people know or understand. Anyway, that's Book Love. We'll get all of the links and show notes here. And um, it is now my great pleasure to re-welcome to the show the one, the only, the estimable 99. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Did I go somewhere that you had to re-welcome me? Well, you were like 
here and there in the episode, and then I just sort of rambled on for like an hour and a half, and then, you know, I'm just kind of bringing it back in okay. live. I have a Poglove suggestion. Tell me. American Scandal, which I've mentioned before, yes. they have a really good Enron series. Ooh, right. Yeah. That's the only one I listen to. Really? Yes, I haven't gone into the rest of them, and I know you're mad at me for that. That's okay. You sure? Mm, I'll talk about it later. Okay. Let's get into show notes, because unfuckers have been with us for, I don't know, like, however long this fucking show was. I, I mm-hmm. apologize for going on so long. I really, really, really love this subject, if uh, you couldn't guess, so... Let's get to it. We had a bunch of new members come through. Holy fuck. Mike G is now a member. You know how to cut through the fog of war. And friends, it is a war. Curiouser is now a member. Enjoying and learning from the show. Jason is now a member. No note, but Jason's just like, what up? I'm here. Joey's a member. Longtime listener. Slow time committer financially. Came to us from the David Pakman show. Love your show. Manny Faces in 99.2 and fuck Tucker. Indeed. Pete Han, or Pethan, is now a member. Hey, squad, longtime listener, longtime unfucker from the start. Got here initially from Best of the Left. So grateful. Thank you so much to Manny, 99, and Max. Proud to be part of this movement. Oh, this is pretty cool, actually. So Pethan is a staffer in the Senate. What? So fucking awesome. So I'm going to read this out. Being around so much cable news makes me want to blow my freaking brains out. But this, this pod is the perfect schema for the progressive fact-based journalism ecosystem we need to foster. One quick comment. Can you build on the mostly vegan world storylines? Got to hear more about the operationalization of what the climate transition can look like. Yeah, I think that's going to be a consistent theme, by the way. Also, will you consider doing an unfucking U.S. foreign policy to the Middle East writ large? Fascinating to track how U.S. containment doctrine led directly down a path towards uplifting autocrats. Yeah, hell yeah. Stephanie is now a member. Loves spending an hour a week with you guys. And guess what? I love you, Stephanie. Twitch455 is now a member. Been listening since Pitchfork Economics first shouted you out. Binged every episode until I caught up. Counted Monte Cristo is my favorite movie, so naturally I was stoked when you tucked that in. Yes, dig that. Aaron Jelt. Oh, actually, give us a pronunciation. Sorry. Aaron Jelt is now a member. Do you have any members in Wyoming yet? Uh, we have listeners in Wyoming for absolutely sure. Is um, that Charla? Is Wyoming Big Sky? Is that Wyoming? Big Sky is Montana. Oh, sorry. That's okay. I'm sure Wyoming has a pretty big sky, too. Uh, but I know I know for a fact we have listeners in Wyoming. I don't know if we have any members out there. Anyway, would have voted for Uncluckers. Thank you, Aaron. Too late. Jesus fuckers would be cool, but I'm agnostic. Yeah, no, we kind of landed on swash fuckers. This is nothing else is appropriate. Oh, this is very cool. I'm a mortgage fucker. I have serious solidarity with rent fuckers. Living on the edge of the Wind River Reservation, white man land ownership weighs on me every fucking day. I'm starting to cry now because it's so fucked up anyway. I have a voice crush on 99. She's the best. Ooh, I donate a lot of money to hear her read The Catcher in the Rye. I need to know, Aaron. I need clarification that you're not going to assassinate me. I mean, The Catcher in the Rye has inspired a lot of fucked up shit, right? But it's also just, it's just a fine book. And the great Nathan E. is now a member. Thank you, Nathan. Andy Mack is now a member, too. God, you could... Unfuckers really killed it this week. I mean, we're going to be able to, like, do this for a living someday if they keep this shit up. It came in droves. Damn. Shout out to Best of the Left for pointing me in your direction. Amazing. And Nurse Ratchet 7 is now a member. Nurse Ratchet. After your plant fucker episode, I've been on a predominantly vegetarian kick. That's awesome. And Zflex is also a member. Learned about the show during one of the Pitchfork Economics episodes and immediately 
fell in love. One last thing, Max, I'm a big fan of your impressions and especially British accents. Please, 99, don't stop him from doing it. Uh, I guess I'll... Ugh. At Will Watkins the Fourth is now a member. Glad you support the pod and your work. I came from Pitchfork Economics and I find your reasoned and enlightened takes in lectures fascinating, stimulating. <laughs> also this, white liberals need to get their aunties and uncles and shake them. Black voters have been doing a whole lot of heavy lifting for our very survival, voting for our lives. Let's get like 2 or 3% more white folks to shift more progressive and their outsized voting power will manifest tremendous gains. Dig it. Jesus, more? This is like earth-shattering. Instigate Utopia is now a member. Damn, I love your facts. Love them. Reciprocal Hokey! Only a hundred-ish members? I know, Reciprocal Hokey. But fuck, you keep this up, man. Seriously, we're going to be able to quit our jobs and just fucking do this. Can you That's imagine? weird, because you're my boss. What? <laughs> the DNC. Now, the people are going to think that I make you do this. Well, we do this. I mean, it was... I had no say in the matter at the beginning. Now it's voluntary. The DNC completely screwed Bernie twice, and nobody gives a fuck. I agree. I give a fuck. Treka is now a member and bought 10 coffees. Well, thank you and thank you. I appreciate all the work the team and sponsors do to keep the info flowing. Well, so do we. And, oh, here we go. Somebody that I've been calling Garel K <laughs> bought five coffees. Been soaking up the free education for a while, and it's my turn to kick in. I hope this pod keeps growing and can really be a change agent in this fucked up world we're all navigating. P.S. It's Jarrell. My wife is in tears hearing you say my name on the Dave pod. Ha 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 ha. Sorry, Garel Jarrell. And Nathan S., who is a serial supporter and unfucker, bought us a coffee, said one of your listeners today asked if you converted any libertarians. I can say you converted at least one. Me. Although I've been moving away from it for years, your program made me realize it's not a place I want to be. Hot damn. We did it. One at a time. Your New York came out. One of your listeners. One of your listeners. That's what you just said. Hey, forget about it. Why don't you fucking tell us what's going on on Facebook? <laughs> I can't. I was going to mimic your New York accent, but I just can't. You'll have to listen to my regular New York. New York accent. Um, <laughs> New York accent. Is that better? Uh, you're... All over the map. <laughs> Why? What do you mean? This isn't New York? <laughs> no, somehow you got New York, like South Kentucky, Carolina, yeah. and yeah. I can't do accents. Please continue, though. Doing it. No. <laughs> fun for me. No. Ethan G said, got me choked up at the end of the episode there. Damn. Thanks for doing what you guys do. FYI, Max, the reason that Cam J was shocked that you only had 99 members is because of your incredibly high quality nature of your podcast. Oh. It's a well-written piece of art. I agree. And then uh, Instigate Utopia, who also became a member, said, I just joined my county's Progressive Democratic Caucus through our revolution to try to, what were Max's words? Revive the shriveled corpse of the Democratic Party? Anyway, I'm sure I'm misquoting Max, but thanks for the inspiration and intelligent company. This is the movement I'm talking about. I mean, somebody that came over from the Libertarian Party, you know, Instigate Utopia, joining the Progressive Democratic Caucus. This is exactly the type of engagement and involvement that we are dying to inspire. Thank you for writing us and telling us about it. If anybody else has taken an action like that, please let us know. You're doing such a good job. Why don't you continue on over on the fucking Twitters? Gross. Hmm. Our friend P. Slippery said, really enjoyed the fire and venom that Max was spitting out at the end of last week's pod. Please do that again at some point. I'll do it right fucking now. It How about that? Basically the entire episode today. <laughs> yeah. And then this one, I'm going to need some clarification on from the tweeter. So at Kentu Kick It, who we know, 
said, have you guys ever considered doing a FIFA or global soccer episode? I think it's right up your guys' alley. Well, I mean. Explain that. You know, everywhere but here, FIFA might as well be like the United Nations. Whenever I read, uh, especially European newspapers or websites. Oh, so cool. I read European newspapers. Well, you know, I'm just saying, whenever I'm abroad. Seriously, whenever I look, it's FIFA's like the top headline everywhere. The scandals and the corruption. People take their soccer, their football, very, very fucking personally. There could be war raging. Oceans could literally be on fire. But if FIFA fucks something up, that is pretty much the top story in Europe. I'm not doubting its popularity. I'm confused about what we would unfuck. Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea. But <laughs> is there I, like a deflate gate of FIFA? That this is deeply, deeply personal. I don't I don't know that I have a, an angle on it or if it's going to be in our lane. If but anything, I appreciate the suggestion. If anything, we should unfuck the Olympics. There's definitely something there. Um I bet FIFA's bigger. I bet the level of corruption and the amount of money that's on the line no and, the, way. and the amount of national pride that goes into it is bigger than the Olympics. Pride probably. Money? Yes. I don't know. They put so much money into creating Olympic towns and the villages and the merch and I'm willing to bet that whatever's flowing through that the soccer economy all year round is bigger than the Olympics. Why don't we, okay, uh, to our Scottish friend who we referenced, mm-hmm. let us know. Yeah, and please write it in. Don't like send us a voice memo because no, we, we actually want to understand. Actually, it would be really fun to play their voice. Good point. Okay, so our Scottish friend, if you want to give us a little education on, on FIFA and how fucked up it is and whether or not we should unfuck it, please send us a voice <laughs> memo. Can you give us a little uh, sample of what it would sound like? I can't. Just give it a shot. I'll do it at some point. You did it last today. week. <laughs> I'll do it at some point today. Okay. Yeah, I just, I can't r- roll right into it. Okay. Um, and then our last tweet is from Macinta. Said, just listen to your latest podcast. You seem to be starting to investigate cryptocurrency and noticing the good things. However, it burns forests. The reason it's so hard to forge a, quote, coin is that it takes a huge amount of energy to mine and forge. That energy requires CO2 emissions. I do think we, we talked about this mm-hmm. just loosely, like probably last year at some point. Yeah, so we had a couple comments on crypto because we mentioned it. In terms of crypto and its effect on the environment, Bitcoin is the heaviest to mine and it is absolutely an energy sucker and it doesn't get better. In fact, as it goes on, it gets worse because the capacity required to continue mining new coins is much bigger. It's not really a sustainable enterprise. But on the other side, you've got store of value and currency like Ethereum or Solana, I believe is the other one. They're much, much lighter. They're much faster. As far as I could tell, their systems are not as robust. Their blockchain is not as, let's just say, durable yet. But I think that's coming. The reason that we would get into crypto, though, is to try and figure out whether or not it is viable to completely disaggregate currency from any sort of central bank authorities and what that does to the nature of deficit spending based upon our MMT theories. So... It is definitely going to take me the full year to get to that, and I have to talk to a lot of people to figure that shit out. But I think it could actually be one of the most important economic episodes that we do. So thank you for sending that in. And on Instagram, Alex said, I was grinning from ear to ear as you serenaded Nettie and proved me wrong to my son who sings off-key in his band and says it doesn't matter. Uh, Sending you a virtual hug for that genuine jester. Jester? Gesture. What up, Alex? What up, Knudsen? What up, Nettie? You inspire us on a daily basis. Alex also said, I want to bring up show notes as part one of Libertarians to send a massive hug to Atomic Dog 
for the exploratory comment about environmental costs of solar panel production, CO2 emissions, and e-waste emerging solar technologies. That is true. And I appreciate Atomic Dog for that, as we mentioned in that episode, and that everybody's starting to really get to circle their ideas around this phenomenon, because it's not enough to, again, project that we can get to this clean energy future. And I hope that this oil episode really did shed some light on how we can't rest or make any assumptions about how this economy is going to transition. Not only do the markets not have the incentive to change yet, they're disincentivized to change anything related to the market if they know that liquid fossil fuels are going to increase. That's really, I guess, kind of the biggest takeaway from this is that only massive and very disruptive intervention into the market is going to change the nature of the economy from fossil fuel to renewable, just in the same way that we're talking about the flexitarian diet changing from 75% animal-based products to 75% plant-based products. That's where we need to get by 2050 at a minimum if we're going to save the planet. So again, that's X amount. can't remember the percentage of emissions, but they're deadlier emissions than the type of emissions that come from fossil fuels. But fossil fuels still emit very deadly, deadly emissions and trap carbon for much longer than the emissions from livestock. So we have to tackle both of them. We cannot just look at one and not look at the other. But within each of them, there are answers for the other. So again, like we talked about with seaweed farming and that turning into biodiesel and that alternately being able to fuel some of our transportation infrastructure, all of this needs to be looked at holistically. All of it has to be considered from a regulatory and policy framework. And we cannot just allow the markets to figure it out and get there because as we showed today, they never will. There's no reason for them. The markets are going to keep growing. And if they get to determine the price then it's game, set, match. So it has to be heavily regulated and it has to be centrally planned. Andrew, finishing the quickie, listening to the show notes, a member suggested shows in the parallels between Hitler's failed coup and the rise in fascism in America today. Great idea. I love it. Got me thinking you could do an episode on economics in France just before the revolution. I fucking love this idea because then we get to go and talk about the differences between Hobbes and Locke. We get to talk about Hume. We get to talk about everybody that had, everybody whose opinions were generated from the conditions in revolutionary France, which then became tantamount to all of the thinking of the founding fathers in the United States. So, Andrew, great suggestion. Lafayette? Yeah. Can you rap like him? I actually can. Okay, let's do it. Can I have a backing track? Nope. No, that's not fair. Truly acapella. Okay. Why? Rip it out, man. You got this. I don't want to do guns and ships right now. Can you? Mm, a good portion of it. For real? For real. I can't do all of it, but I can do a lot of it. Lay it down. I don't believe you. I'm not doing it right now. Do it. No. No, then it never happened. Then you don't know. Obviously, you can't. Okay. All right. I don't like this. Joe Mish. I fucked this up both times. Joe McLugelschmortz. Can we get an episode on anti-Semitism? I know it's too late for a Holocaust Remembrance episode, but I would still appreciate one. Yes, please. Ab fucking lutely I love that. You uh, love anti-Semitism. I just, I love, I adore it. It's I eat so it up. so great. I love fucking with the Jews. Just my favorite, favorite thing. Yes, no, I think an anti-Semitism episode would be great. I think it would be a good compliment with an E to an Israel-Palestine episode because they're not the same, you know? They are not the People same. People equate them, but... And I can't wait to lose one half of an audience or another by dipping into that. We have to do two versions. <laughs> we have to do, like, you know, A-B test it and see who gets what. Over on email, we had a lot of really good responses, a lot of good inquiries here. The first one's from Kevin B. 
to everyone at UNFTR, this podcast gives me hope for the country. I listen to your podcast in the mornings on the way to the brewery with a cup of coffee. Good old boy from Indiana who grew up right of center was a Marine full of piss and vinegar that eventually came to the reality. I'll just read it directly here. We're now seeing secondary effects of the industrial war complex spill into our society due to the past 20 plus years of combat vets returning home. We're trained to kill. It took me over seven years to unpack some of that. We're like rescued fight dogs who survived. Please keep up the good work and thank you for helping me continue my education with the deep dives into American economic history. And I just had a baby girl five months ago and I want to make sure she has a future here in America. Thus endeth my rant. I love this email so much. I always love it when people trained on the right who find their way into the middle and are open enough and especially being indoctrinated through the military, which isn't to say that there's always a proclivity one way or the other in the military, but people who are indoctrinated into the culture of nationalism who escape it and live in the world for much longer than they did serve in the military and are willing to be open to hear other things. And it's not an anti-military stance. It's just that says a lot to me about the type of character of a person who can actually look at their own experiences and evaluate them with honesty and integrity. So, Kevin, welcome to the fold. Glad to have you here. Nurse Mary. Oh, this is fun, too. Spent some time in the car today with my 21-year-old daughter. Had her listen to Max's rant at the end of last week's podcast, the one regarding fuck Joe Biden. We have an update on that, by the way. As I expected, she loved it. We spent the rest of the drive listening to her picks of previous episodes. And after dropping her at her house, getting back to the car, tuning to my radio to local NPR station, what did I hear but 99 talking about unreported Native American unemployment numbers? Your secret's safe with me, 99. So what do you want to do about this? <laughs> I don't know. We could keep the myth alive or I could just say, Nurse Mary, it was not me. I'm not on NPR, but I'm flattered. It'd be really awesome if you were. Were you tuned into my old college radio show <laughs> somehow from a time warp? Because maybe then it was me. Could be you, 99. Also, we'd have a lot more funding for the show. Mm. Would we? No, oh, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. We'd just work for NPR. Yeah. Um, we'd have some tote bags, though. Guaranteed. But you, you obviously have a vocal doppelganger out there somewhere. I know. Can you send me who this person is so I can investigate? Nurse Mary, say what up to your daughter. Thank you for listening together. I'm glad that inspired the conversation. Let us know who it was over there. Or maybe we can look up the... Uh, I don't know where Nurse Mary lives. No, the Native American... Oh, yeah, because it might have been a local, right? May, not, would... Might not have been national NPR. Yeah. I Got ain't it. no stalker. I, on the other hand, am an excellent stalker. Wait. Anyway, you know what I mean. Check it out. One problem, though, is the people who don't get talked to. American Indian and Alaska Native people in particular. Marketplace's Savannah Marr has that story. One person whose employment situation won't figure into Friday's jobs report is Stephanie Sosi of Saley, Arizona. In early 2020, she was working towards a bachelor's degree and she hoped... Snail powered? <laughs> this is the update from last week. Yeah. So I'm just going to lead mm -hmm. off with the fact that I will stand behind every last bit of Max's rant about Joe Biden. But here's the thing with Snail Powered's comment from last week. <laughs> I actually didn't mean fuck Joe Biden. I'm such an idiot. I didn't even think of this as I was going. I'm sure you did. And you were like, okay, he's on a roll. I'm just not going to stop him right now. I was confused. That's why I said it like that. I was like, mm. I mean, I did ask if it was John Bon Jovi. So that's, that's where true. I was. I was going for fuck James Buchanan from the Libertarian episodes. Yeah. I mean, I just got, you know, finished <laughs> speaking about the guy for half yeah. an hour. Then I was like, yeah, FJB, you fuck Joe Biden. <laughs> but in fairness to me, I had just gotten back from Florida. And when I tell you, I saw FJB hats, T-shirts, stickers everywhere. 
either Let's Go Brandon or FJB. So I just had it in my head. So I apologize for misinterpreting that. But, you know, it's like a sorry, not sorry thing. And I think that's totally funny. So other than setting the record straight on FJB, I'm glad it was misunderstood because the rant was totally worth it. I appreciate that, Snell Powered. Bill C., outstanding rant about Biden. In fact, I had a healthy chat with my adult daughter on the same topic. Whereas I agree with your points about Bernie, I still maintain he could not have won 2020. Ah, and would have been a more polarizing candidate versus the Trump sphere media blitz. Okay, so I disagree, but I think it's a really good conversation to have. Let's not go into it today because this is already like a nine-hour episode. But Bill C., I totally feel you on that. At the end of the day, I pulled the lever for Biden because it was over. The you know the, the primary didn't even make my state. It was such a fucking hand job, but it was what it was. So I pulled the lever for Biden, and I did it with a clear conscience because that's how the system worked at that moment. But everything leading up to it was just such, such fuckery. And the only thing I'll disagree with is that if you can believe, because it happened, that Donald Trump made it all the way, why wouldn't Bernie? Bobby McD! I hope Henry is chilled out. Well, you notice that uh, 99's in the studio this week, right? I hope Henry's chilled out since that wonderfully surreal interlude during show notes. Yeah, no, I think uh, what actually happened there, Bobby McDee, is that 99 did indeed murder the dog, and this whole thing, her whole little vegan thing and animal rights thing is just a front. She's an, she's an animal murderer. Why would you say that about me? Because it sounded like you were killing that dog. After I and did all that reporting on NPR? Hurt. <laughs> uh, Bobby goes on to say, when you said FJB, my first thought was fuck James Buchanan. Do you know why, Bobby McDee? Because that's what the guy fucking meant, and I'm an idiot. Anyway, but I'm 100% with you on Biden. He's not up to it, never was. A good vice captain, not a leader. It's no surprise Putin is acting like a maggot in Ukraine. My concern with JB is that his myriad weaknesses will be exploited by a Ron DeSantis. Now you're getting to the issue here, Bobby. Who I think will get the 2024 nomination. Scary, but, you know, if we had to bet today, I would agree with you. Although a lot, Jesus, I mean, so much is going to happen between now and then. And the electorate will sweep in a strong man president, all very dark, and I was with you all the way during it. So FJB and FJB for Christmas. And then who else? We have Brian M. who says, much love, 99, Manny and Max, you do fabulous work, and I love listening to your show. As a fellow vegan, I totally side with 99 and say I'm glad plant fuckers won out. And Brian would also love a UNFTR deep dive into Canes. He gets mentioned in a handful of shows. And it would just be another chance to fuck Milton Friedman, just saying. Well, here's the good news, because Brian also mentions The Price of Peace by Zachary Carter in his email. The good news, Brian, is that we actually did cover this in our Fuck Milton Friedman episode about the Chicago School. So if you check that out, almost the first half was dedicated to Keynes, and we drew a ton from Zachary Carter's book. So go back and check that out, and I think you'll be pleased. And then Derek R. said, terrific work just one month into 2022. All episodes felt very personal. I was tepidly seduced by libertarianism for a brief time after college, but I was angered when I eventually realized just how much this ideology was a glove for forces like, what was the, what, Cox? Is that what Bobby mm -hmm. McDee? So yeah. the, the Koch <laughs> slash Koch brothers et al. to slip their hands in and pull the levers of power in their favor. And much like libertarianism, it's equally disheartening to have witnessed some friends and even a few family members get sucked down the Fox News rabbit hole. Let's continue to keep meeting people where they are and never closing doors. And then Michael P. Oh, and Michael P. had a really funny idea. So he said, I know y'all were open to the idea of mental health episode, and that's very appreciated. So that's not the funny idea. But I wanted to <laughs> bring that up to know that it's still on our docket eventually. Um, his funny idea is, 
It's based on the most recent podcast that might be silly, but I think it's funny. I was thinking you could do a character with all of the mannerisms of our favorite Fox fuckhead, but the exact opposite viewpoints and call him Unfucker Carlson. I'll go to the corner now and think about what I've done. Thanks for everything y'all do. Remember we did the skit where Tucker yes. was a real boy? Yes. I did him more as a Pinocchio. I have, you know, in my own private time, been trying to work on a Fucker Carlson impersonation. It's not coming along well. I don't know why I can't really wrap my uh Because he my just kind of talks like it. this and doesn't really say anything. He just makes statements. He does. And he ends on this really annoying, the kid you hate in high school, lilt at the end of every fucking sentence. And I just, I fucking want to punch him in the face. Maybe it's because I don't want to punch myself in the face doing the impersonation. But mm. I like that idea. And then Sarah M. said, hey, just a shout out to say I love you all. And also that listening to the beginning of the quickie, I learned that anything I hear come out of fucker Carlson's mouth sounds like a lie, even if it's the truth. And then this one is from Ribbons the Friendly Viking. Ooh, this um, is charming. <laughs> so they said, it may be a bit outside your line. I'd say no more than veganism, but I'd love to see you unfuck the techno fix. Short version, it's the idea that technology doesn't really solve problems. It only replaces one problem with a different one and puts off the deadline to deal with it. Like how switching from fossil fuels to solar and wind means just mining for different chemicals that present the same kinds of environmental destruction and toxic byproducts, not to mention unrecyclable waste. Yeah, we've definitely touched on this. We, we touched on it in a couple episodes now. Doing an entire episode about it is really interesting. So I'll dig in and do some research to find out what else we're not thinking about in yeah. terms of toxicity of, of the byproducts. And it's a cool, just like we're now sort of adding veganism into our episodes where it fits, this could be a concept that we, you know... Like plug in there and I hadn't heard of it before. Me either. Yeah. But it applies to a lot of stuff. Dig it. And then our last email from Kira S said, I love the way you break it all down with a ruthless criticism of everything, and I'm recommending you to everyone every chance I get. I even join my local Democratic Progressive Caucus. That's what I'm talking about. But this, why the anonymity? Rut row. <laughs> I think I've listened to most of the shows now and seem like there's not a word of explanation. Mm. I have to admit that even as I gobble up every word like Henry the dog Ooh. eating his dinner, I'm always questioning the reliability of a source that won't name itself. Fair. I respect the impulse to put some distance between yourselves and the kind of celebrity journalism that thrives in the cesspool of Twitter, but it would be great for the sake of integrity to get your take on your pseudo-anonymity. Sure. We've addressed it a couple of times, but I'm always happy to come back to it and address it because I think it's important. When we started the show, I thought it was very important that we, if in the wild, wild, you know, recesses of my mind, imagining that we would someday take off and become a thing. I never wanted to, I'm not a Twitter person, I'm not a big social media person, and I never wanted the personality to get in the way of the story and the narrative. And I feel like one of the things that inevitably happens when you become tethered to a name and a personality and a background, it becomes junk, it becomes baggage. And that baggage, whether, like we allude to the fact that I'm a basic white guy, I am. But then they're seeing that. And then there's having a name and a backstory and all of the things that come along with building that impression based upon your impression as a listener and your experience with the type of archetype that I am. 99 is. Manny is the only one that's publicly facing. Manny, Manny, by the way, is a producer and he's out in the world and he is publicly facing. And even though that's his pseudonym, he doesn't hide from his identity. That just happens to be his DJ name. Yeah, y'all can Google me all you want. But, you know, as far as I was concerned, I was like, well, I never want to be the story. I want the story to be the story. So I want to make fun of myself and I want to be in the background, but I never want to be the thing that you lump your preconceptions onto that then suddenly colors your view of the content. And that's why, Kira, maybe someday 
you know, can't last forever. But I really just wanted the content to stand on its own. Mm-hmm. Plus, if you knew who Max was, you'd judge his blue hair and handlebar mustache <laughs> and his eyebrow ring. And that would just be like, I don't know, like kind of a weird image to have in your head. I feel like as he's talking about all these issues. Don't be judgy. Yeah. Leave my blue hair in my... What did I have? An, what do I have? An eyebrow ring? You know, don't don't play coy. <laughs> your handlebar mustache and your eyebrow ring. Let's get to Substack so we can let these people get on with their days. They love it. So Pete then, who we heard from before from Pittsburgh, sent in messaging has to be sensible and tangible enough to make the delivery of it feel right. Then you can begin to slip bullshit through the back door and into the subconscious. He's God, quoting that is you. A, an amazing. St- <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. Sorry, right. Oh, sorry. I, oh, I see. I wrote that. <laughs> uh, what are the fucking repercussions of this? This feels huge. So what are the larger ramifications of a Republican base that only exists in this media ecosystem? And two, how do we create a big enough honest media ecosystem that informs, advocates on behalf of the majority of the real people? I don't know, Pethan, you tell us. I mean, one of the reasons that we do Podluff and we reach out to other shows is to do exactly that in a way, is to pull together sort of a, a loose coalition of shows that we believe are doing the work. And they trust us to do the work as well. We talk about that a lot, obviously, that sourcing is super important and not just having a show that spouts opinions. That's that's not what we're interested in. Now, we're, we've reached out to some shows that I think are a lot of fun and hopefully we can collaborate with them. But they're from really, really smart people that are doing the work and also have, you know, a lot of sourcing to back it up. So that's what we're hoping to do. And so to that end, Pethan, who else do you listen to that you trust that you believes does the work, and let's see if we can make a relationship with them. That use believes. Yeah, you know, the two youths. <laughs> what is the thing from Pittsburgh? Yins? Is that racist? I don't know. Is, that a, is it like use, like yins? Well, if you're asking if it's racist, I wouldn't go with it. I don't think it is. Before we close, I just want to thank listeners who left us these five-star stellar reviews with some really lovely comments. So thank you, Cindy C624, Staline Cuisine, and braces for impact for leaving us these really great reviews. It really does help. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Many Faces Media. I I spent too much time looking for the NPR thing. I I got nothing. Our show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99, who I'm happy to be sitting next to in the studio once again. My punch for this week is making fun of how you say reservoir. What do I say? Reservoir. What do you what do you say? Reservoir. I'm not French. War? Reservoir. The reservoir. Reservoir. It's a reservoir. Okay, fancy boy. Wow. Our theme music was composed by Tom... Oh, such a bitch. Reservoir. Reservoir. I'll never be able to say it again. Reservoir writ large. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. Like, seriously, do it. Tom McGovern. (laughs) He's a seriously talented cat. The show is hosted by Daniel Plainview and distributed by Wildcatters. Send your comments to unftrpod at gmail.com and connect with us on social at unftrpod. Now, we did ask everybody, by the way, to get on social, get loud, get noisy. Make us part of the 1% of all downloaded podcasts. Get loud like J-Lo at the inauguration. Uh, okay. She sang Let's Get Loud in the national anthem. Do you remember? Nope. It was the best. Was it, though? I love Let's Get Loud. I was just talking about this. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRpod. So, a lot of new books going in this week on fuckers. I hope you love oil and crude as much as I do. Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop. 99 is going to be sending out 
some really cool information on all of our updated blends, and finally, whole bean fucking coffee. Woo! Read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com, and remember, what is it? Free. Free for you, free for me, always free. free. Yo, it's always free. Always. We're from New York. Yeah. Always free. Get about it. Yeah. Catch you next week, 99. Peace. Peace. <laughs> Leave me alone. Peace. I didn't do it that monotone deep voice. Peace. I really laughed at it. I love you, vegan dog. It made me laugh so hard. And the parallels between our dick and the dick and the parallel. All right, before we get into the heart of short. However, born, born, however, born forth. <laughs> just wants to start the email with a great grant. With a giant thank you to quiet. Oh, fuck you. I'm just going to find something else to read.